James 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Good morning, everyone. I think most of us, when we sing that last song, sing, I surrender most, I surrender, you know, a solid 65% or something like that. I don't know if I know anyone who sings that more honestly than, than Matt. His whole life that I've known him has been, what else can I do that would be really hard for Jesus? <laughs> and if you know anything about Ethiopia, he might have found it. <laughs> he might have finally found that thing. So pray for Miranda and the girls too. Well, what is the relationship between living a holy life? Right, I know you weren't listening, so I'm going to say that again. What is the relationship between living a holy life and salvation through faith in Jesus? Salvation through faith in Jesus, living a holy life. What is the relationship between those two things? That's the basic question that James answers in this passage. He'd already indirectly addressed it a few times. But here he explicitly answers and defends his answer. In short, James argues, here's, here's the main thrust of this passage, James argues that there is an indivisible, you can't divide it, you can't separate it, an indivisible connection between genuine faith in Jesus and good works. You, you don't have one, you don't have the other. You don't have the other, you don't have the one. So in an attempt to make things as clear as possible, because as you can probably guess, this is an important this is an important idea in the Christian faith. I'm going to preach on this over the next two weeks. And in the next two weeks, there's four parts to the sermon. Just the first one this week, and then the, the last three parts next week. And here's the four parts. First part today, I'm going to do my best to lay out James's basic line of thinking, his basic reasoning, his, ba- his basic argument. In the second part next week, I'll present the problem, okay, to take James for what he says is good, it's, it's true, it's inspired by God, but it presents a, a, a problem, scare quotes problem, that we need to deal with. 
As we read Paul, for instance, and what sounds like a contradictory explanation of the same ideas here. In the third part next week, I offer what I believe to be the biblical solution, lots of scare quotes, solution to the problem. Uh, And then in the final part, the fourth part, in light of all this, in light of what God's word has to say about the subject James addresses here, what does this look like in practice? How do we live in light of what they say? So at the end of the day, here's my hope and prayer. These two sermons, these four parts, will help you come to a greater understanding of this this passage and therein a greater appreciation for the place that righteousness, good works, righteous works is meant to have in your life and in our lives collectively as the church. So it's, it's an open prayer. These two sermons will help you come to a greater understanding of this passage and therein a greater appreciation for the place that righteousness is meant to play in our lives, in the lives of our church. And then from that, 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 that greater understanding and appreciation, through that you would experience a new, maybe for the first time ever, or a renewed Holy Spirit-empowered conviction to walk in righteousness. If you know the place it's supposed to play, I hope by God's grace you will receive a Holy Spirit-empowered conviction to walk in righteousness. And from that, a Holy Spirit-infused assurance of salvation. So let's pray that God would do all that and then more things than even I could think of. So God, I, I pray this morning that we would feel the weight of this passage. It's a weighty passage. It's a, it's a relatively mild one, but it's a rebuke. It's a challenge to people who claim to have faith in Jesus, but there's very little in their lives that would indicate that. I pray that we'd feel that. I pray that there would be people in this room who have thought that their hope was in Jesus, that this morning would realize that it wasn't, in order that it would be. <laughs> it's not the end of the story. That that it's only once we realize that we've been separated from God and and are hostile to God, that we can truly come to God through Jesus Christ. So I pray that the result would be some this morning, maybe maybe a, a child who grew up in a Christian home and just always sort of assume that, or maybe an adult who's lo- long thought of a type of faith that James denies as sufficient. Whatever the case may be, I, I pray that we would recognize that there is a kind of faith, a kind of profession of faith anyway, that is dead and useless, empty. And that anyone in this room who has that would would see that this morning and turn to Christ. And for those who find through James real evidence of real faith in them, I, I pray that there would be a fresh rejoicing, a fresh gladness, a a, a fresh assurance of salvation, a fresh commitment to walk in greater dependence upon God and greater pursuit of holiness. So I pray that your word would do your work, do do its work in short, whatever that might be for us. I pray I'll listen in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to ask a series of questions that are just an unpacking of the first question that I asked. Does God care about whether you live a holy life? Does God care? Does he care what you do? Does he care what you think? Does he care how you feel? Does he care whether you have actual holiness in your life 
or not? If so, what's at stake if you are or are not? You're, you're professing hope in Jesus that your sins have been forgiven? Does God care whether then you live in a holy way or not? Does, does, does he care how much? Is there a percentage that he's aiming at? Exactly how holy do you need to be? Assuming he does care, how, how much does he care? And, and how much holiness do you need to have before it's a good thing? In what ways do the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus affect any of this? What, if any, connection is there then between your holiness, the amount of holiness in your life, and the assurance you might have of salvation? Again, these are the kinds of questions James had in mind when he wrote our passage for today. And of course, his questions are right at the heart of the Christian faith. So James doesn't tell us everything, which is why there's a second sermon next week, but He doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the relationship between faith and works, but he does give us some critical parts. It's more than what he says, but it's not less than what he says. And so James's main point, once again, is that any claim, if you're going to write anything down, write this down, any claim to have saving faith in Jesus that is not accompanied by a life of increasing holiness is a lie. I'm going to say that again. This is James' main point. He's writing, he's writing to people who apparently are struggling with this. The main point in this passage for James is that any claim to have saving faith in Jesus that is not accompanied by a life of increasing holiness is a lie. Good or holy works, righteous works are a necessary part of salvation in Jesus. That's what James is arguing here. And to help to help his readers understand, to help you and I understand this and accept this, to receive this. He explained and defended it around four examples. Uh, he has four examples he's going to use, and with each he wants you to further appreciate the truthfulness of what he's saying in order that you'd further live in light of it. So two of his examples are imaginary scenarios that he comes up with, and two are real real stories from the Old Testament. Let's The whole sermon is just going through these four examples. The first is the hungry and naked brother. James began by asking a simple question. And I want you to ask it yourself. I'm going to answer it from James, but I want you to see, can you answer this yourself biblically before I get to it? does Does the answer already exist in your mind from God's word? So here's the question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. So I, I want you to be, I hope you can already answer that question, but if not, I certainly hope you can at the end of this week a little better, and better still by the end of next week. You say you're a Christian, but your life doesn't line up with it. What good is that? That's the essence of his question. And then he further wonders, can that kind of faith save someone? What kind of faith? The one that has faith but not works. So he gives a brief example that I'm going to come back to. And after that, he he makes it plain right away that these questions are rhetorical. He's not really wondering. He knows the answer. And here it is. Here's his answer. Listen to this, Grace. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, this is the word of the Lord, just as much as Paul, Ephesians, Romans. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So as a means of convincing his readers of the obviousness, what he seems to understand is the obviousness of this claim, he gave his first example. 
the example of one of them, one of his readers, he invites them to imagine themselves, one of his readers, claiming to have faith in Jesus, and then stumbling across somebody who doesn't have adequate food and clothing. So I offer that to you. Imagine yourselves claiming faith in Jesus, and you stumble across somebody who is a Christian that is lacking the basic necessities of life. And he says this in verse 15. If a brother or sister, Christian, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, he says to his readers, one of you, Grace Church, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, food and clothing, what good is that? So the situation described by James is as simple as it is compelling. It's not complicated. There's nothing in the Greek that's going to turn it into something you don't think it means or didn't realize it meant. Just It's as simple as it is compelling. It's a version of the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, James's brother. In it, James invites his readers to consider a Christian man who, it's implied in the text, through no fault of his own, had come to a place where he lacked the very basic necessities of life. Perhaps through sickness or persecution, this man, this Christian man, was short on food and clothing. So next, James says, having pictured that, Christian, through no fault of their own, struggling with food and clothing, next, James invites his readers to imagine themselves coming upon this man. James wants them to assume they are well off enough themselves, and upon seeing the plight of the man, even express compassion to him. Go in peace. Be warmed. Filled. It's not hard to imagine, right? So far, so good. That's the point. James is sucking you in. He's sucking me in here. At this point, we'd expect James, James's imaginary reader to do something about the nakedness and hunger. However, the story turns quickly when we find out that instead of offering any actual assistance, peace or warmth or fullness, James... James's well-wishing readers simply continued on their way, doing nothing to improve the suffering of this man's situation. And the point is, we're supposed to hear this story and realize that's ridiculous. What, what, what kind of actual, real compassion would someone have? Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry for your condition, brother. I mean, I, my, my wallet's fat, and I'm, you know, my belly is too, and good luck, man, I'm out of here. What... What real sense of compassion would we believe that they had in that situation if they did nothing to actually help the brother in Christ? And the answer that James implies and and then explicitly states is there's no sense in which we would believe that person's claim to having compassion, real compassion. James wants us to recognize the audacity of such a response to such an encounter. You have the means to do it, you claim to have the will to do it, but you don't do it. It's audacious. And then he wants us to ask ourselves whether or not the claim to have compassion in that situation should be trusted. Should we trust the person who claims to be compassionate but does nothing that compassion would imply? While we might have been inclined to believe the reader at first when they first said it, I hope things go well for you. James urges us to see that a person's actions, the the person's actions tell much more of an accurate story than merely their words. So more to the point then. If in this hypothetical example, the incongruity of the reader's 
words and actions, the fact that the words and actions don't line up, if the incongruity between the two causes us to doubt the authenticity of the words themselves, we ought to have even more skepticism when we come across someone who claims to be a Christian, who claims to have real faith in Christ, but without any good works to back up their claim, and to feel that grace. We're meant to, to feel the way, that's a weighty thing. We're meant to feel the weight of that. So there are three main things to take away from this first example. The question is, what's the relationship between the actual holiness in your life and your claim to be a Christian, your claim to be saved? Three, three pieces to the puzzle here that James gives us. The first is that you'll notice a person's, uh, that he was addressing a person claiming to have faith. If someone says he has faith, verse 14 says, whether or not a person actually have, has faith, is an entirely different matter, and, and, and whether they do or not is at the heart of what James is addressing here. Second, you'll also notice that James did not, did, did not deny that faith is necessary for salvation. What he denied, that faith by itself was enough. Now, we've got to figure out more what he means by that. But he says faith alone is dead faith. It is not alive. Therefore, it is not good, verse 14, for anything much less to save someone from their sins against a holy God. And third, the kind of faith that is good, that can save, that is alive in James's language, is always accompanied by good works. So again, James' thought experiment was meant to highlight the absurdity of the claim that genuine faith can exist apart from genuine works of righteousness. You with me, Grace? That's the first example. Here's the second. Second example, for, for, the second example involves someone and demons, verses 18 and 19. James's first example was from the perspective of a hypocrite interacting with an authentic believer. This time, it's from the perspective of an, of an authentic believer interacting with a hypocrite. Again, in his second example, he invites his readers to consider a person of genuine faith confronting a person who's claim to genuine faith is question is in question. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He, he expects a little pushback. He, he expects a little wondering at what he just said. It says, the man of genuine faith then challenges the other man to prove the authenticity of his. Two, two people claiming faith, one's genuine and one's skeptical, and the genuine man says, I got to, I'm going to challenge you. you. You claim to have faith in Jesus, but i got to press on that a little bit. He says, it's good. It's good that you claim faith. That's good. But lots of people are doing that these days. What evidence do you offer that I might believe your claim? What, what do you have to suggest that you really are hoping in Jesus? So we're meant to imagine this man on trial responding with what he probably thought was a safe and sufficient answer. James is writing to a largely Jewish Christian audience, and so he says, again, the guy whose faith is on trial responds, and he says, I know my faith is real. This is my paraphrasing. I know my faith is real because I believe that God is one. Well, with that answer, he was reciting, remember this is a, 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 probably a Jewish Christian or someone claiming to be a Jewish Christian, the beginning of the sh- Shema. That, that 
probably, you know, comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the most basic profession of faith a Jew might make. And it begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's about as safe as it gets. Rather than accept his answer, however, the man of genuine faith called on the demons to testify against this man. You believe there is one God? (laughs) You do well. But man, even the demons believe that and shudder. His point is the foulest fallen angel, Satan himself, knows and believes that God is one. To prove your faith is real, you'll need to do a little better than Lucifer. The true believer offered something different. He said, show me your faith. I believe God is one as well. But you show me your faith in that God, apart from any any works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Good works, righteous deeds, acts of holiness, obedience to the commands of God flowing out of a person. The power of the Holy Spirit are what demonstrates the authenticity of a person's faith, not mere claims to faith or mere regurgitation of things that are true about God. In this example, James gives us a few more pieces to the puzzle, a few more parts to the answer to what is the relationship between faith and good works in the life of a Christian. First, he reiterates what he had just said, the fact that the claim that a claim to have faith is not the same thing as having faith. Calling yourself a Christian is not the same thing as actually being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Second, he teaches that having orthodox belief is good and even necessary. Believing things that are true about God and Jesus and what Jesus has called us to, that's good, even necessary, but not enough. That's a big deal, Grace. In a church that takes sound doctrine as seriously as we do, this is a big deal. Good doctrine alone is not a sufficient mark of real faith. And third, once again, faith and good works together, combined, is the mark of a true follower of Jesus, James tells us. The first two examples, again, were hypothetical. His third one involves a real, his third and fourth, his last two involve real people from the Old Testament. In particular, he offered stories from the lives and words from God concerning Abraham and Rahab as evidence of the necessary connection between faith and works. He introduced the story of Abraham with quite a jab. <laughs> if you weren't paying attention yet, he's going he's gonna to throw a gut punch here. You want to be shown, you foolish man, you foolish woman, you foolish reader of mine, do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? He doesn't, doesn't pause. He doesn't wait for an answer. Apparently, he assumes that his readers accept the fact that they're fools and and that they do, in fact, want to be taught by him in this. He went on to explain what Abraham teaches about the relationship between faith and works. Look at verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. His faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, to appreciate what James was getting at here, we need a little bit of background. In Genesis 12, God met with Abraham. So back in Genesis, if you've been at Grace for a while, we, we were there a while ago, um, I was going to say 
recently, but it wasn't all that recent, I guess. In Genesis 12, God met with Abraham and made a number of promises to him. Among them was a promise to make Abraham into a great nation, a man of many, many offspring. And yet, sometimes later, so Genesis 12, the promise was made, but but in Genesis 15, sometime later, aging Abraham, he was already old and getting older, was still childless. God had promised many, many offspring, and he still had none at this point. Well, he brought this concern to God. God, what, what's up with that? And in Genesis 15, 5, God answered him. God took him outside and showed him the stars in the sky, and he said this, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So though Abraham and his wife Sarah were getting older and older and childhood or or childbearing seemed less and less likely, he nevertheless, Abraham nevertheless, the text tells us, believed the promise of God. He didn't know when or how, but he truly believed that God would follow through. And therefore, in Genesis 15, 6, we read, and Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness, or justified him. That's what James is referring to, that passage. So the important thing for us to see here, you got to get this. This is really important as we move towards next week. This is a huge part of the answer. It's important to see here that God had counted Abraham as righteous, or justified him, in Genesis 15, before Isaac was even born, which didn't happen until Genesis 21, not when he put him on the altar, like James talks about, which happened in Genesis 22. Again, this will become a really key part to the sermon next week, but here, here's what you need to see. You simply need to see that James's point is that belief in God, the belief in God that Abraham expressed in Genesis 15 before he even had a son, would have been meaningless. It would have been meaningless if it had not caused him to offer up Isaac in Genesis 22. It was the act of offering up his son that gave goodness and life and usefulness and completeness to Abraham's faith. It was Abraham's action based on his faith that proved that his Genesis 15 faith was real. You with me, Grace? It was the following through that demonstrated the reality of the faith. We need, we really need to get our heads around this, so I want to say just a little bit more about it. James James pictured God's declaration. God declared Abraham to be justified back in Genesis 15. James pictured that as a kind of promise that would be fulfilled at the time of his obedience in Genesis 22. That's what he meant when he said the scripture is fulfilled in in our passage in verse 23. In fact, Abraham was told by the angel of the Lord, now I know that you fear God. It was on the basis of this trusting fear of God in 15 that he was declared righteous or justified. But he says, now I know in Genesis 22, through the obedience that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your own son, your only son from me. As a result, there's no new mention in Genesis 22 of Abraham's justification, but God did restate and reiterate the covenant promises he had made with him. So all of that, James concluded, conclusively proved that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in that, we are given a couple more pieces to the puzzle. First, James, for James, it is unqualified folly, foolishness, 
to believe genuine faith can exist apart from good works. Second, in keeping with this claim, he's already said that worksless faith is good for nothing and dead. In, in keeping with that, he added to the list here. Not only is it good for nothing and dead, it's also useless and incomplete. That's not good. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Think of that in terms of your money. It, it just doesn't work anywhere. That's, you don't want to hear that. And third, the third thing that the Abraham example helps us to see is that James again describes faith that acts in good works, that acts out, that, that produces good works as the only kind of faith that is good for something, alive, useful, complete. Real. All right, last example he gives in 25 and 26. His final example involves Rahab. Do you know the story of Rahab? The entire story is found in what providentially uh, I've been reading in my quiet time the last few days. The entire story is found in Joshua 2, chapter 2, verses chapter 6. If you're not familiar, I'd encourage you to read, read this. Read the Genesis 15 to 22 passage and get a fuller understanding of what James is doing here. But the story of Rahab is found in Joshua 2 through 6. So it's a longer story, but the upshot is this. The Israelites, Abraham's offspring that God was faithful to give to him, uh, they had been forced, they had been freed by God from Egypt. They started to have lots of well, you know, you know the story. They had lots of babies. They got, they got enslaved. They had now been freed from Egypt. They'd wandered around the wilderness on account of their faith faithlessness, and now it was time for them to finally enter the land that God had promised way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 to Abraham. This is an exciting time. To that end, Joshua, the guy who had taken over leadership of the Israelites from Moses after Moses died, sent spies into the land. God said, now's the time. The promised land is about to become yours, and so Joshua sent some spies to see what we're dealing with, what's going on in this land that God had had promised us, has promised us and told us we're about to inhabit. Well, making their way into the land, they came to a city called Jericho, and there they met a woman. Her name was Rahab, and she was a prostitute by profession. Surprisingly, this this woman from Jericho, this, this prostitute, allowed the Israelite spies to hide out in her home to avoid capture. Well, that very evening, though, the king of Jericho somehow found out about all of this and sent men to confront her. Rather than turn the Israelite spies in to save herself, she hid them and lied to the king's ambassadors to protect them, even sending these guards out on a wild goose chase. Once the king's men were gone, Rahab shared her motives with the Israelite spies. She explained that her people knew of the mighty power of the God of Israel and were greatly afraid because of it. In the fear of the Lord, then, Rahab offered to help the Israelites escape and even conquer her city, if only they would spare her life and the lives of her family as well. She kept her word and helped the Israelites take Jericho. So James wants his readers to see that if Rahab had merely promised all these good things, but failed to deliver when the time came, her promise would have been meaningless. Actually, it would have been less than meaningless, since a betrayal certainly would have led to greater problems than if she had made no promise at all. James used this story to help his readers understand that that it was Rahab's actual helping 
of the Israelites, not just her promise to do so, but her actually actual helping that proved her sincerity. That's why in verse 25 we read, and in the same way, in the same way as with Abraham, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And the main point of all of that for James is this. It's in the text. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It is a fact that by God's design, a human body needs a spirit to remain alive. If I asked you to define death, how would you define death? You'd probably say something like when your heart stops beating or when the electrical impulses stop working in your brain or you stop breathing or something like that. Well, you're better theologians. You should know better. What is death? De- death, in its fullest and purest sense, is by definition the spirit's leaving of the body. For that reason, a body without a spirit is dead. If you don't have both body and spirit together, you don't have physical life. In the same way, James argued that faith needs works to be alive. If you don't have faith and works together, you don't have spiritual life. Just as a body without a spirit is dead, so faith without work. Just as a body without a spirit is a dead body, faith without works is a dead faith. That's James's point. In this example, James again explained and established further the relationship between faith and works. And it is such that even though faith is necessary for salvation, genuine faith always produces good, righteous works. He earnestly wanted his readers to understand that, that they would not be deceived, that they they would not go around wrongly having confidence that they were followers of Jesus when they weren't. Not to shame them, not to heap guilt or coals upon them, but rather so that they could then turn and believe for real. So he earnestly wanted his readers to understand that it makes no biblical sense at all to claim to have the kind of faith that God counts as righteousness that does not result in actual works of righteousness. So finally then, through Rahab, James shows that a person's justification is tied, directly tied to the good works they do as a result of their faith. No works flowing from faith, no justification. So here's my conclusion. What is the relationship then between living a holy life and salvation through faith in Jesus? What's the relationship? By way of four examples, James answered this question in a handful of ways. He said that in order to be saved, a person must have faith. However, the claim to have faith and actually having faith are not the same thing. In fact, a claim to have faith, apart from corresponding and increasing good works, is dead. It's not good for anything. It's useless and incomplete. He went on to explain that even faith and good doctrine is not enough for someone to be justified. So in the end, his main argument is that a person can only rightly claim to have faith if it is marked also by good works. And that is simply another way of saying that God's people must not be hearers of God's word only, but doers also. So the main takeaway for all of us in this, again, at Grace, whether you've ever heard this term or not, if you've been here, what you're hearing is expositional preaching, where the main point and tone of the text is meant to be the main point and tone of the sermon. And so where the text is is light and happy and easy, so should the sermon be. 
And where the text is hard and heavy and difficult, so should the sermon be. This is a, a, a text of mild rebuke, and so it's a sermon of mild rebuke. The main takeaway for all of us in this passage, then, is to examine our claim to have faith in Jesus in light of the way you live your life. Take a look at your life. Take a look at the things you do and don't do, and test your profession of faith against those things. That's what James wants from us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Where we find belief in the person and promises of God, coupled with conformity to the character and obedience to the commands of God, we can be confident that our faith and salvation are real. Where we do not find this combination, though, growing in us, we found a fresh charge to look to Jesus for salvation and the transformation that always comes with it. Whatever else may be true of the Christian life, it's never less than this. So, okay. (laughs) So, if this passage from James was all that we had on this subject, we'd be left with some clarity, but also with no small amount of concern. If this is all we had, this is a little trepidatious. This is a little nerve-wracking. Thoughtful readers of James, of the passage we just worked through, are left wondering, how many good deeds then do I need to do to have real confidence that my faith is genuine? What happens when I, when I find some of this measure of hypocrisy that James is calling out among his readers? What do I do when I want even to have good works, but they just don't seem to be coming? Thoughtful readers of this passage are thinking of those things. And on top of all of that, I alluded to this earlier, but on top of all of that, as you know, James isn't the only biblical writer to address this subject. This letter is a part of the Bible, and all of the writings of the Bible are equally inspired by God and equally true. Therefore, when we read James say, you see that a person is, listen, Grace, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. When you read James say that, And then another part of the Bible say, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. We need to get to the bottom of that. (laughs) We need to figure that out. Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Or are we saved by grace through faith and works? Oh, that's where we're going next week. Yep, that's what you were meant to do. That's about as much of a cliffhanger as I'm allowed to give you from the pulpit. Well, that's where we're going next week. In, in, in the meantime, I kept going back and forth all week. Do I, do I, do I say this or not? I'm going to say it. You're meant, to, you're meant to feel the weight. James wants you to feel the weight. And yet, in the meantime, Grace, rest in the certain knowledge. Find rest in the certain knowledge that the blood of Jesus is enough. It's truly enough for all who have faith in him. It is enough to forgive us of all of our sins, our bad works, and our failure to do good works, and it is enough to empower us for all the obedience that God requires. And so it is for that reason now, I'm going to pray, we're going to come to the Lord's table. That's the good news, that we get to eat and drink in Christ.